0: We have the opportunity, indeed the responsibility, to renew the special relationship for this new age. The special relationship
1: Prime Minister Tony Blair, I appreciate you coming back, Mr. President. The special relationship was so long-lasting. Prime Minister Tony Blair, I appreciate you coming back, Mr. The
0: special relationship the ties of affection, family, and language, and institutions, and culture
1: you coming back long time no see I know you've been in Canada being all Hollywood or Toronto as they <sighs> so say in Canada t- yeah
2: <laughs> the Hollywood Toronto mm.
1: um, yeah yeah I've been away mm. it feels like a,
2: a while ago now because I've been yeah. back a week or so but it's taken us a while to organise ourselves mm.
1: but here I am back on back on your little blue, blue couch yay I missed you. Thank you. Oh, I missed you
2: too. Did you? Yeah. I know, so you told me earlier, I said, what have you been up to? And you told me,
1: you cur- you've got curly hair now. I do. That's what you've been doing. Again, I won't bore the podcasters, but if you YouTube curly girl method, you'll never sleep again. <laughs> Not because you'll be afraid, but just because you'll fall into a YouTube rabbit hole. Mm. Um, especially if you've got hair, which is... A, Basically, if you don't have like super is, fine yeah. poker straight hair, probably this method will work on you in one way or another, I'm and you'll be um, swept away. I'm excited to to, have, to try the curly girl method. Do it. So yeah, I've been away. I've been working. You've been getting your hair curly. That's that's what's. That's I've also of, been working like believe. a good capitalist. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, we've got a different a different kind of podcast this week. We do. Dads, dads, dads. Dads, lads, dads. Lads, lads, lads. They aren't and our dads lads. Lads. What lads? This week, we actually, this
2: came up um, because we, when we did our Reagan and Thatcher episode,
0: mm.
2: we kept saying, I'm not sure, I don't know, we need to talk to someone who knows. And we realized that we need to talk to our dads, because mm. they were alive then and have lots of opinions about politics. Mm. And then we thought <clears throat> it would also just be funny in general, because they're quite similar men mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, they both have sort of m- military backgrounds. My, my dad's, my granddad was in the army and my dad was sort of growing up, grew up on military bases hmm. and your dad actually, his dad was in the army, also then he went into the army, into the Navy actually, both of them. Yes. Um... And they both sort of have similar politics, similar, like, political journeys.
1: Hmm. And they're
2: both uh, fathers to very, very talented, wonderful daughters. Yeah. Uh, so that's a big deal. And they're, both, <laughs> they're born in the same year. They were. That's creepy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, are both born on a military bases. Yeah. Well. Weird. So we kind of thought we'd interview both of them uh, to get a sense of what's it like to be an old British man? What's it like <laughs> to be an old American man? I have to say it was delightful. It was. I learned yeah. a lot. I learned, I learned things about my dad and I didn't really know. That's nice. I didn't learn anything new about my dad. I've heard all of those. <laughs> I've heard all those soapboxes before. He's given me all those lectures before. <laughs> Is that true? Did you tell me thing I didn't know? I don't think so. Mm. <laughs> he has. He has his. Uh, he has his sound bites. <laughs> um, anyway, it was lovely, and they were both wonderful as they always are. Mm. Um, but anyway, we're gonna let you listen
1: to them, guys. Um, you can listen to our dad's talking. Richard Ashworth, aka Dad, yeah. Ripstoffer, aka Dad. So please be polite and respectful.
2: This is our fathers we're talking to. Dad, sit down, sit <laughs> down and listen. So call them sir. They wouldn't like that. I don't think they want to be called sir. No. Um, you'll need a cup of tea. Probably they'll need a comfy chair. Maybe a snack halfway through. Thinking about dads now.
1: <laughs> Snacks. What snack is your dad gonna have when he listens to this my dad likes what's my dad like is, is he in, he's not into snacks
0: mm. but he
1: does like a cup of tea <clears throat> and he does like
2: marmalade mm. on toast
1: mm. is marmalade a thing in America
2: yes yes my dad's very worried because well actually not only my dad but also I know my friend Charlie's dad about the um, dwindling popularity of marmalade in our in our uh, modern culture Yeah, yeah He's worried that marmalade is dying out. As a food. Ben loves marmalade. Oh, that's good He'll to He'll keep
1: marmalade a business.
2: Okay, hear that? Dad, Ben. Ben likes marmalade. A young person who likes marmalade. Mm.
1: Um, but uh, in terms of snacks, I think he likes crisps. <clears throat> so you're, What's your dad's favorite snack? Um, he likes a lot of snacks. He's a snack kind of guy. Snack kind of guy. He likes, um, likes smoked almonds. Ooh, yeah, Fancy snacks. Uh, there's a thing called Gardettos in America, which I don't think exists here. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of... Um, I don't even know if there's an equivalent. It's like a. Well, it's like Bombay mix, but it's not Indian flavors. Mm. It's like. I guess it's more Italian flavors. It's like tiny breadsticks and pretzels. That sounds And yum. these like really sort of salty, balsamic y, um, crisp things. Um, he likes those. He likes popcorn. Oh, absolutely. likes he beef doesn't. jerky. Oh, my dad's vegetarian. Oh, yeah. Um,
2: so he likes tofu jerky. Yeah, I don't think he likes jerky. I don't think he's a jerky fan in general. All
1: right. Uh, so they see this is where our, this is probably where our dads differ most is my dad is a big red meat man. Yeah. Mm. My dad's a big big green green avocado
2: fan. <laughs> mm.
1: Everybody likes avocados.
2: Who doesn't? What's my dad's favorite food? Butter. He, he, <laughs> he's, he's not vegan. My dad likes butter. <laughs> he's like Paula Deen, just eats it by the spoonful. He kind of dies. If you have, if you make my dad toast it'll be like thick with butter. Mm. Um, He's very excited because Bailey's have started doing coconut milk flavor baby yeah this is vegan yeah Mm. Uh, he's excited about that for this anyway this is something we didn't talk about with our dads because we talked about much more serious issues yes Uh, but at least now you know about their snack game
1: as well (laughs) (laughs) which is obviously important i mean if you want to get yourself in the mood depending on which country you're in have a piece of toast drowned in butter and marmalade yeah or a big bag of Gardetto's. (laughs) (laughs) all right guys enjoy Bye. bye
2: We were saying ages ago that one of the things we should do on the podcast is we should find the most English person we knew and the most American person we knew and talk, tell, ask them about Englishness and Americanness, and we both said our dads. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I mean, I don't, don't know what, what you are racially, Amanda, but I am, like most of the British, a mongrel. You know, I have Irish, English, Jewish, all sorts of funny stuff, but I'm, I'm, that kind of makes me English.
2: Yes, I think that's right, um, and we've got Welsh as well, though we're not on your side. Yes, no, I would allow that. <laughs> um, so, Dad, you were born in uh, well, eighteen
0: seventy-five. You cheeky girl! I was born in nineteen fifty-two, the year of the water dragon.
2: And would you say what it is to be? I'm saying English just because uh, we are English, and yes. I think. It's be specific possibly in this context is more interesting and might come more out of it but obviously Britishness is a, for a lot of these questions read British and I guess we can make well, that distinction when we want to I, uh, think, yeah, it does, I, I feel a bit weird saying English because there's a sort of a I, I get that too,
0: I, I think I think actually what I was saying about my racial mongrelness is I, I feel British not particularly English, I feel British
2: Yes, yes um, Do you think that has changed since
0: 1952. Um, I do think it has because you know in in 1952 it was a pretty yeah. you know relatively lily white place, but, mm. um, and it's, we have become much more multicultural. Um, mm. So in in that res- in that respect, yes. But I mean, I, I was I was born in born in Malta, so you know. Yeah.
2: Because uh, my granddad was in the Navy. Right. And your dad right. was in, in the Navy.
0: In yes. the Navy. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. My, my, dad, my dad used to say that the sun, the sun never sets on the British Empire because no one will trust an Englishman in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, and the, the truth is that in ni- 1952, it was a very common thing for, people, for British people to be born in Kenya or Singapore or Egypt mm-hmm. or Malta.
2: And also, I suppose, because you're only sort of what, well, uh, seven years out from the Second World War, people were, a lot of, there was more military people. People were still working for the military. That, that, there was sort of more civilian military presence. Does that, does that make any sense?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, we, we had bases all over the world, but also the, the bi- there was a big demobilization, obviously, in 45, 46, but there was another big demobilization, I think, at the end of the 50s. So, yes, I mean, my, my father spent a lot of his time on aircraft carriers cruising in the, the, the South Pacific. Mm. Um, um... I take cruising, I mean on a boat
1: yeah it's really funny that you talk about this like um as a a thing that was happening sort of in the 50s in the past whereas in america it's still like it's still very like we're still overseas all the time like we still have massive military presence everywhere my brother was born on a military base um so it's it's sort of interesting that like you're talking about it as a thing that was not uncommon um sort of in the post war era um but in america it's sort of still happening because we're still um spending all our money on our military well
0: well, you you guys took over as the world's police if you like yeah i mean and police police is a very polite term for the role the british took on you could say the world's tyrants or interferers or busybodies but um you you guys took up that role in the, from about 1943
2: didn't you mm yeah, well, and you know, we've been doing. We did an episode not that long ago about Churchill and um, uh, FDR, and I, I think one one of the things I found really interesting doing that episode was one sort of Amanda having researched Churchill came away from it so infuriated by the kind of way we deify him because he was such a, an awful like racist um, imperialist person, but also the other thing down
0: I, to his American mother, wasn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> but also. <laughs> But also, I think that we, what I hadn't quite realized is that in 1941, we'd basically given up. We thought it was over. The, the, German, you know, the war was over. We were not going to win. And it, if it hadn't been for the Americans, we gave away so much to America in sort of persuading them to get involved mm-hmm. that basically Churchill kind of gave up the empire in that moment. Because he kind of went, I and mean, America did not have the sort of economic downturn after mm. the war that we did.
0: Well, yeah. the, the American, I mean, this is controversial territory, but uh, <laughs> there are many people who would say that that America made an awful lot of money out of the Second World War, certainly up until 1941.
2: It certainly was the turning point.
0: And, um, you know, we 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 took on a load of equipment on what was called Lend-Lease, as, as I remember. I don't know much about it, but the bottom line was by the, by the end of the war, we owed America everything, you know, by our shirts. Yeah,
2: and it kind of hasn't, that dynamic hasn't really changed. And we sort of still think yeah. of ourselves as like, you know, as if the British Empire is a thing, but we're just a really, like, small and significant European nation now. Barely European! <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, we've always been like that. I mean, because we are an island nation, we don't understand really, you know because we're surrounded by the water, you must be British if you're here. So we're very confused by that. Whereas, you know, as you know, Poland moved, you know, 50 or 60 miles to to the west and, you know, the borders of France and Germany and God knows how many have changed over the years. I mean, whereas Britain remains an island.
2: Yeah. So do you think, what, how, what would you say, because I think, I, I've, you know, in my various readings, read a lot of different things about, like, the British character. And I think what we think of now as a British character is sort of quite... Um what's the word? Uh <laughs> like Complacent. sorry?
0: Complacent?
2: No, it uh, wasn't quite that mean. It, um <laughs> withdrawn. There's a better word than that. What do I mean?
0: Reserved?
2: Reserved.
0: Reserved, yes. I mean, I think that is a, that is a, it certainly is a stereotype, but I'm not quite sure how that is squared with the stereotypes that we present to the world. I'm not sure The Beatles were reserved. I don't think James Bond is reserved. You know, so I'm not quite sure how that works. But I do think what happens is, you know, we, we do have, for better or for worse, a pretty elderly culture. You know, we, have, we haven't been invaded for a thousand years. Um, we've done a good deal of invading, but we haven't been invaded for a thousand years. Um, so we've had, had time to settle. Um, and, and, uh, you know, yes, we are kind of phlegmatic, you know, there's what's called the British sang you know, the, the, the kind of reserve, you know, we don't, don't, don't get too excited about anything. Um, and, um, I, there's something, something very good about that, because basically, what it is to be British is that we don't really give a damn about anything very much, and particularly, people can do what they like as long as they don't get in your face. He
2: said, I feel like that's been questioned, and I used to think that was it. Like this, I think lovely Tom Stoppard talks about it in one of his plays about, um, something. he says, something is, is the salt in to flavour the bread of English moderation. Uh, which is a really nice idea that we're a moderate country that basically just lets you get away with things as long as you don't question us. But that hasn't been true. Like the, the last, well, year, two years since Brexit and the sort of nationalist feeling that has kind of come with it has made me feel really depressed that maybe that's not the case.
0: Well, I, I think it remains, you know, the the British character, if you like. I mean, I think we're confused by multiculturalism. Because we're confused by people who care about stuff. And we're also confused by religious belief. You know, the big difference, if you like, between Britain and the USA is, you know, they say that when, when Britain, you know, when American catches a cold, we, we sneeze or vice versa. And there's a great deal of truth in that. But um, we shipped our religious loonies across to America you know, pretty much deliberately, from the beginning of the 17th century. So there are certain areas that we just don't deal with. Nobody in Britain is used to, until recently, considering religious issues. So multiculturalism, which involves serious religious devotion, is very confusing to us.
2: Well, not since um, 1559, or whatever it was, uh, the Elizabethan church Uh settlements, which we all talk about another time. (laughs) Uh, We haven't really considered this stuff. Um, so, would you say what it is to be British has changed since you were a little boy?
0: I, I, I think so, but I mean, I think it's up in the air at this point, um, for you know, political reasons that are maybe transient. But I think Britain as as a place that has been extraordinarily privileged. And, you know, because basically we, you know, predated the whole of the world. You know, basically our wealth is based on nicking assets and resources from all over the world. But I think the the British attitude of laissez-faire remains so. And I think when the current unpleasantness settles, I think that will continue to be so. I I feel
1: like current unpleasantness is a very British way of describing it. it. You know,
0: interestingly, current unpleasantness... Current unpleasantness was actually a variation of my friend April, who comes from Knoxville, Tennessee, who referred to the American Civil, For- Civil War as the recent unpleasantness. <laughs>
2: interestingly. Yeah. No, it's her granddad used to call it the recent
0: unpleasantness. Fresh. Which he
2: thought was such a funny phrase.
0: And Interestingly, with, with, with um, April, a brilliant brilliant woman, a Rhodes scholar, um, she came over to visit us once, and this really encapsulates the the difference, perhaps. With one of the, she brought this book, which said, "You know, a hundred reasons why it's great to come from Tennessee." And she kind of, you know, innocently said to us, "Is there anything like that for Britain?" And we said, "No, but there are thousands that say why we crap." <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: yeah. You would not get. I think that's what I mean by English reserve. There's yeah. a sort of self-deprecation and sarcasm mm-hmm. that. Like, uh, like absolutely abhorrent the idea of that sort of um, quite American kind of guileless patriotism and pride we just don't have we just are so self-loathing
0: don't well you? I used to think that the, the big difference the cultural interface was to do with irony and I think that, that that has changed I mean I think American culture on my observation and Amanda could correct this or not American culture has become much more aware of irony Whereas, you know, British wit is built around, you might call it sarcasm, you might call it irony, but essentially British wit is built around saying the opposite to what we mean. And uh, You know, the, the, the construction, you, you know, you're looking great today, not, is kind of a way, a, an American originated way of making clear irony. Uh, <laughs> irony is the British way of life
2: underlining what you're saying yeah yeah not it's, subtle. it's funny i that i always tell this because amanda and i quite often have these things where we'll we'll uh describe i remember being with um juliet and then juliet was talking about uh, somebody and she was saying oh, it was so annoying she asked me to take her bags and i had to take her bags downstairs and god it was the worst And man was like did you tell her you didn't want to carry bags
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: all of us british girls were like no <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: but it was a great job and yeah. so the jokes that she sort of takes advantage of that in me, she'll say stuff like do you mind if, for example, do you mind if we record at, your, at my house and I'll be like oh, um, no, no, no. Oh, no, that's fine she'll be like, great, cool, that sounds
0: fine, that's what we're doing I
1: don't, yep. exactly. I, feel like, I don't feel like I'm taking yeah. advantage
0: of it. I feel like you, I asked, and you say yes, and we're all fine with it. Exactly. It's like in, in um, um, Evelyn Waugh's Scoop, which is a very funny bo- book. Is it Henry Boot, the, the journalist, and he works, works for this guy, and he has two, t- if I remember, I may be mangling it, but he has two answers, which are yes and up to a point. And <laughs> up to a point means you are barking absolutely not
2: yeah <laughs> yeah um and we just don't do that and that definitely is like I, I find it it's its almost a i can feel it it's a mental block i can feel it happening where i'm like what i mean is i really really don't want to do this and i can't say it yeah i'm not actually definitely that's ever happened with me you and me and But I, <laughs> I, I observe it in myself now you've pointed it out i'm like what i'm going oh no, no 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 that's fine oh well would you, would you like to do it that way? And it's like, why didn't I just say I don't want to do it? <laughs> it's really odd.
0: Um, well, we, say, we say sorry, I think, more than any other culture, don't we? We're saying sorry all the time. Yes. And, we, and I remember, who's, who's a very funny, big black American comedian who works over here?
2: Original The Hunter.
0: Yeah. Yes, very funny, very witty one. He was saying when he ar- he'd arrived, he was clear that we were in fear all the time because people kept saying to him, I'm afraid that this and I'm afraid that that and I'm afraid the other. Which again, is it's a very British way of, of kind of bluntening something sharp, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we talked about this with the word, the way that people here use the word unfortunately. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Like
1: as though it wasn't something that they were causing, as though it was something that was like happening by fate. It's like, unfortunately, we can't do that today. And it's like, that's not unfortunate. You're just choosing not to do it.
0: <laughs> yes, we're we're kind of attributing it to the stars, aren't yeah. we?
1: Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about patriotism? Do you feel patriotic?
0: I think patriotism, as whoever... was Oscar Wilde said it's the last refuge of the scoundrel. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. I mean... Uh, You know, family values are probably the same thing, because what they are, as Andrew Ronsley said, is thinly veiled attacks on the defenceless. And patriotism, you know, I like being British. I've never wanted to live anywhere else. Um, You know, I think British culture is, is, you know, you know, or, or, or... it is not perfect, but there's a lot that's great about it. But patriotism, in the sense of, do I think, think that it's important whether we win at football, or would I declare war because, you know, our dignity was being touched, I think that is total nonsense.
2: But I would say you're quite, in the sort of nice way, you are quite patriotic. As you say, you, I, think, I feel like I'm quite patriotic, and I think I got that from you, in that I think England is beautiful, and I think we have the most incredible legacy of art. You know, I'm incredibly proud of that. And what you're saying about the British character, I I like that. I I sort of find myself bristling at a sort of American enthusiasm and and optimism. And when I I like the the British irony. I don't think I'd want to live anywhere else. And I think that's a nice way of being patriotic.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. If that's patriotism, I'm all for it. But if patriotism is my country, right or wrong, I mean, I think, as I said, that's why it's the last refuge of the scoundrel, because yes. it's a way of turning off moral sense.
2: Yes, I wonder if there's another word. I mean, it's like it's home, and I and it's and it's and it's where I'm from. And but patriotism, I guess, has a derivation in patriarchy in Patronizing and all those things. So it's about it's a sort of a more head of the family kind of quote, don't question it, just do it kind of thing to it that I, I don't recognise
0: in myself. It always derives from the Latin patia meaning father. There you go. <laughs>
1: um, it's also not. Um, I mean, I've heard the argument made before that it's not a thing. The reason that it's such a big thing in America is it's a thing that we needed to form an identity because it was a new country.
0: You know, yeah, well, you yeah, you Americans. You know, the joke about Americans is that you're very insecure, so mm-hmm. you have to pledge to the flag, and you have this term on American. You know, I mean, un-British is a very silly idea. We don't, don't wouldn't really understand that. But the idea, I mean, if you if you read um, um, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so interesting because basically what he's what he's saying is, you know, in this these dangerous circumstances, you know, if we run out of red Indians to kill and there aren't any wild beasts, we prey upon each other. And there's something something about that in American patriotism.
2: Hmm. Well, I heard that, yes, you needed it, didn't you, to create mm. a nation and, and, and out of the wild. Um, yes. And, you, Dad, you, you lived in – you actually lived near where um, – uh, Amanda's
0: family lived now in McLean, Virginia didn't you? Do you or, live in your parents McLean, Virginia? No,
1: they live in um, Reston, Virginia so it's also sort of northern Virginia um, okay. but
0: just that kind of area. We we lived lived in two places we lived in Merrimack Drive um, McLean and in Linda, on Lindenhurst Avenue and Lindenhurst Avenue I think it might have gone, it backed onto the Dolly Madison Freeway as it, I was there as it was being built in the summers of 63 and 64 but oh. yeah my, d- my dad was attached to the British Embassy. And, if, you know, if you, if you spat, you'd hit a CIA officer.
1: Right. <laughs> Do
2: you have any memories of, of a child? I remember you talking about comics, about buying comics. Lots of it.
0: I, I, I mean, it, it was a golden time. I loved being in the States. And my, It was my father's favourite job in 20 years of being in the Navy. Um, interestingly, um, I don't remember seeing a black person, mm-hmm. which an extraordinary thing. Um, I do remember sitting in the Giant, which is a supermarket chain, I don't know whether it's still there, mm-hmm. but sitting in the Giant reading DC Comics, and I just loved DC Comics. I mean, they, they have the smell and the feel and the look of those covers. I mean, still, I could go back there now, and it's just so beautiful to me. And when I was watching Mad Men, they had the right covers <laughs> in the 1963-64 episodes, the right covers of the Superman comics. Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, the, you know, the... Um, the Justice League of America, didn't much like Marvel, Marvel Comics. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, lots and lots of memories of that. It was an extraordinary time, yeah.
2: Um, so you were there only for, this, for the summers because you were at school here?
0: Oh, we were there at Christmas in the summer, yeah. So I was at public school over here otherwise.
2: Mm-hmm. And then Christmas is different in America, though, isn't it? They don't have Christmas the way we do. I, this is a revelation that I have had since doing this podcast. <laughs> I didn't realise that that, that, that Christmas isn't, isn't quite... Food-wise, maybe, particularly, isn't quite the big deal in America as it is
0: here. They don't
1: have the big meal like we
2: do.
0: Well, nobody told us.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> we do have a big meal. It's just not prescribed the way it is here, I think, in terms of what exactly it considers. Yeah,
2: whereas your Thanksgiving meal is very prescribed. Yeah. Yeah, which I find interesting. So Thanksgiving, in a way, is kind of how we do Christmas, and that's a very specific way what I have. It. And it's a very similar meal, actually.
0: Yeah. Um, giving thanks for having got rid of the English, really.
2: <laughs> I always tell, there are two stories uh, I tell about you, Dad. One is the one where you were in a lift. I can't remember what it was. Were you in Las Vegas?
0: It was in Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas.
2: Oh, you tell the story, Dad.
0: Well, I I, I was in, in this lift with my friend, Darren Clark, um, and we were talking about nothing in particular, and a lady leaned over and said, that is a gorgeous accent. Where does that come from? And I said, Madam, this is not an accent. This is the original.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so so rude dad and then the other thing was um i can't remember somebody asking you if you, if um
0: I was on I was on, a, this is interesting, I was on a train journey, which proved to, to take geological time because of privatisation of railways over here, probably about 10, 10 12 years ago, and there was some, it must, I guess it must have been November, and some Ameri- Americans were talking about getting, getting home for Thanksgiving. And this lady, perfectly innocent, innocently, said, said to me, do you celebrate Thanksgiving? And I said, I don't think we can see much to celebrate.
2: <laughs> it's a weird question,
0: isn't it? <laughs> oh, well, did you know Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving? Isn't it a different one, though? I don't know. I just discovered it. This, this, this week, Canadians celebrate Thanksgiving. Is it different, Amanda? I don't know.
1: Um, it's a different time of year, but it's the same kind of thing. It's the same sort of like fall harvest, mm, big dinner type of thing. Does it commemorate
0: a different
2: event? Um, I, I don't know the history of the Interestingly, though, we still have the Harvest Festival, which is actually really kind of the same thing.
0: Well, yes, I mean, that's to do with the the cycle of the years, isn't it? Yeah. That is, um, I don't know how to pronounce it, S-A-M-H-A-I-N. I I think it's pronounced, believe it or not, but in the Celtic calendar, it's the time when the cattle that you don't need through the winter are slaughtered and you make sure that you've got enough food to keep you going.
2: Well, just like so many of these things like Easter and Christmas, they're all based around seasonal, you know, uh, ancient uh, things, aren't they? Of
0: course they
2: are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of privatisation of the railways, uh, we also wanted to talk to you about Thatcher, because we did a lot of research into Reagan and Thatcher and their um, <clears throat> close relationship. Yeah. Uh, and we thought it was interesting because Amanda's dad, who we're going to talk to in a bit, had a similar yeah. thing where he was uh, bought well into Reaganomics. Mm. And, yeah. Uh, um, and is now. Well, he voted
1: for Reagan anyway.
2: Yeah, mm. and, and is and now a, 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 a Democrat. Yeah. Um, and you had a similar thing. And it was because of you were a small business owner in the 70s, right?
0: I was. I remember the, the three-day week. Um, the the three-day week was what it sounds like. The electricity was turned off for two days of the working week during 1974. And it absolutely crippled commerce. Why was like, what? All kind of record. Sorry.
2: Just explain why the electricity was being turned off.
0: Because of industrial action. It, it's it, so The unions, the unions yeah. holding the government to ransom. And what was ironic was that a Labour government couldn't contain the unions. Anyway, I, I had a small chain of record shops. I was, I was a, a teen tycoon. And my brother and I <laughs> literally carried car batteries from record shop to record shop to make sure that the decks would continue working and we had some some kind of light that was very dim and we had candles as well, but just so that we could stay, stay open. And my, my jeans, literally, I would go through a pair of jeans in a fortnight because the battery acid would go through them. And we did that. I don't know how, many, how, how long it was. It felt like a long time, but it was probably a couple of months. And it was very clear that the balance between union power and, uh, you know, the well-being of the nation was out of kilter.
2: Yeah. And so that year you you voted for Maggie Thatcher-Milk Thatcher.
0: Maggie Thatcher didn't didn't, um, stand until 79. And the truth is, yes, I did vote for her. And as I said to you before, I'm not sure that I would do differently again. You know, perhaps I should have done more research on Reagan and Thatcher at that time. In 1979, I I think something needed to change. But what followed was the miners' strike. And industrial action where, the, where Thatcher's government were needlessly cruel and negative and caused economic chaos because of their determination to quell the unions. And at the same time, we had the nonsense in Argentina where 1,500 young Argentinians were drowned simultaneously and the stupid woman was in Parliament saying, rejoice. That's, and I voted for her again, <laughs> I voted for her again to my eternal shame, and I will not do it again in this incarnation. <laughs> but the, second, the second time was inexcusable. What, after that I met your mother and she set me straight.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but what, what made, what was it? Was it just uh, not doing your research? What made you, uh, was it the same feeling that made you vote for her a second
0: time? I was ignorant and arrogant. I was making a lot of money, and I was stupid in all the ways that men in their 20s are. But interestingly, um, I remember going to Million Dollar Roundtable, which is an American thing, recognition for top financial services people. In 1979, I think, I was ahead of the game. I think I was the first of the people that I knew to qualify for this, which meant having sold an awful lot of stuff, contracts. Um, And it was the year after Richard M. DeVos who founded Amway, had given a talk to them, and the transcription, which I've still got as a kind of a, I don't know what it is, it's kind, kind of a like kind of a regrettable souvenir. I still have it, I read it, and he was talking about trickle-down. This is Betsy DeVos's father-in-law, Amanda, you probably know. Yeah. Um, and he was, ta- he was explaining trickle-down, and I thought, yeah, that's right, that's a really good idea. I make lots of money, it trickles down, everybody's great. And um, unfortunately, in the words of from um, Edward Blackadder, it was bollocks.
2: <laughs> and I suppose that's the thing; it makes you feel better, doesn't it? As someone earning money, because you're like, "Oh, good!" Oh, i like, like confirming what you hoped was true.
0: I guess so. But I mean, I was I was young. I was younger, you know, best part of ten years younger than you are now. So I was, you know, I was not I was not nearly as smart as I thought I was. Mm.
2: And in that time, so in the next sort of. Ten, twenty years, everything was privatized. Um,
0: and well, th- yes, I mean from from nineteen eighty three, Maggie had a, had a kind of, kind of a free hand, and the thing was that in the miners' strike, I mean I think the miners were mis- misdirected by by um, Arthur Scargill. that There were cynical leaders That's of the, the opinion, left who yeah. were building their own own power groups. Um, who were not looking after the working man and the the dignity of work was what was being defended, as opposed to the economic needs of people. Then there's a subtle difference, but not that subtle. Um, and what followed on from that was that Maggie Thatcher had pretty much nothing to say after 1983. But a couple of her cabinet ministers, I think principally Keith Joseph, had read Hayek, who is kind of kind of like um, Keynes plus plus. I mean, Keynes says the market is king, except, which is the same thing that George Soros says and Robert Sk- Skidelsky and God, so many of these guys. Um, but what Hayek said was the market is king, period. And you know what? He was totally bloody wrong. Uh,
2: so I think one of the things when we talk about Reagan and Thatcher, um, I was sort of... Talking from an assumption of uh, my quite lefty socialist politics, yeah. uh, um, and I was talking about, you know, <laughs> when Maggie Thatcher died, the fact that Ding Dong the Witch is Dead was number one, and there was riots, yeah. burning effigies in, yeah. the street, in the north of England more than, than uh, in, in the south of England, and the fact that she was given a state funeral was seemed just uh, totally inappropriate. But Amanda's question was, why did everybody hate her so much? And I, I feel like I gave her quite a sort of, um, it was quite a, I think, unsatisfactory answer, because actually I was like, well, because everybody hates it. What? Because she was a woofle. I um, think, I've well, um, clearer and as, 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 um, as objective as you can answer to that question.
0: Well, that, that she was awful. doesn't really have much content in it. I think I'll take the overview and I would basically say what she did was to move politics to the right in a way that was plausible to a lot of people who should have known better. And her privatization, ide fixe, which is what Keith Joseph um, and others were behind, meant that... Assets that have been built up by the contributions of the common people over generations were taken over by fat cats. And those assets should have been available to pay for pensions, for universal basic income, for the national health and so on and so forth. Instead, they were stolen. That's the rest of it. I think she was deluded. But the rest of it is detailed. But that's essentially what she did. And basically, we are still in our whatever it is, fortieth year of Thatcherism. Now we have not recovered. And the problem is that the that wealth has been distributed upwards and continues to be so.
2: There you go. Does that, does that help you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting okay. understand more now. Do you, actually? Mm. Oh, good, 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 good. Uh, what were
0: you going to say, Beth? Your mother is muttering. She broke the unions. Mm.
2: But then perhaps that wasn't – well, what Dad is saying, Mama, is that perhaps that needed to be done to a certain extent.
0: But, Bessie, we've been arguing about that for 35 years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Also, I think Mum has similar stories about, you know, working under lamplight at the jewellery shop in, um, in Bristol Market. And she didn't bloody turn turncoat, did she? She didn't go, go bloody fascist.
0: Your, your your mother, as you know, has street cred. She was arrested on a BNP protest in Bradford. Your your mother has the stripes to prove it. Anti- I don't. Anti- I was a complacent middle class fool. <laughs> what no. were you saying, Mum? Anti BNP. Yes, no, not, not for the BNP. Anti BNP. Let's be clear about that. Um, yeah, did
2: you know that, Mum? I my didn't. Mom, my That's a, amazing. Yeah, my mum's a criminal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. Like. You know, Amy Schumer and Emily Ratajkowska. Yeah. Radachowski. Radachowski. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Mum. Well, <laughs> oh, There you go. There's, there's a, a bracket to be in.
2: <laughs> um, did you have any more questions about Reagan? What did you think? Were you aware of Reagan? What was, how, what was the... Because, I mean, I think when I was sort of researching Reagan, he had a similar kind of... I mean, we've actually... I mean, Trump isn't anything new to us, in a way. We've had a pretty... Other than Obama... And I guess Clinton. We have a pretty derisive view of most Americans. Like we had a similar view of of George Bush. Like he was just the punchline of jokes in the UK. And I think Reagan was it like that because Reagan it was an idiot.
0: I think I think George W. Bush. I'm leaving out his father for the time being. And Clinton and Trump are the kind of extreme of white male entitlement. And whereas I think Reagan was a bit different. Firstly, he was an actor, so he knew how to be popular. That's what he was really good at. And he came across as being kind of cuddly and lovable. In this country, I think most people just thought he was silly, thought he was funny. You know, I remember there was a guy, guy who used to do a very good impression of him, where he'd be saying, my fellow Dobermans. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, I think we kind of dismissed him. And I think maybe Americans, he got under your guard. Um, and some of my, this is kind of my awakening at that point, this is early 80s, isn't it? Some of my icons, like Neil Young, for instance, were big boosters. John Stewart, you know, that guy who wrote um, Daydream Believer, he was a big booster of Reagan. These guys, who to me had been kind of radical, were... Pro Reagan, so it was a strange time. I didn't quite get what was going on. I think it's true to it.
2: I hadn't realised that he sort of united the US in a very, in a way that I guess Tony Blair did here to twenty years later.
0: Kind of thing. I mean, as I say, you know, Neil Young made made you know, some of his worst music at that time, but he was a Reagan booster. He made a dreadful album called Old Ways, which was you know would have, would have been best pulped from you know the outset. Um and and um John Stewart on one of his albums he says one more for the Gipper you know and there's still people who talk about the Gipper aren't there Amanda
1: Yeah what were you gonna say um, for well just at the time that he was elected the first time in like I guess 1979 um I mean we were going through a similar sort of crisis we were having a fuel crisis um yep. and the cost of fuel was just like astronomical um and yeah, Jimmy Carter was had become really unpopular, so I think Reagan was a bit. He emotionally for people, I think he became a bit like Obama was, where it just felt like an escape from what they were going through at the time.
0: But you know, a uh, Jimmy Carter, if I'm right, is the only American president on whose watch no American serviceman was killed in action. I think that's true. And it's definitely true. He's the only president under whom America didn't actually invade anywhere.
2: Those are
0: really important, really important facts. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, What was I going to say? I was also, I had this theory, and I think I talked about it a bit in the Reagan and Thatcher episode. I think there's a sort of interesting thing about American politicians, which I I remember sort of getting around the time George W. Bush is that they're sort of... The way that, like, I think the British are quite um, seduced by a, a posh British... A, a posh accent and a posh sort of public school education. And you can see yeah. that in our political system. So many people went to Eton and Oxford. And we sort of, we think they they sound clever. The way yeah. we're seduced by those politicians. I think Americans, and I noticed this, I realised this, like, with, with George W. Bush, there's a sort of uh, movie star charm Mm. That yeah. seductive, and I think you could say Trump has the same thing. Mm. And well, like but we, Trump doesn't have the kind
0: of locker locker room, um, you know, cred that, that um, say George George W. Bush did. But I think I think that is very interesting because essentially the ruling class in this country are sociopaths. And we have a system for creating sociopaths that's 400 years old. It's called the public school system. In America, it isn't quite quite as efficient. So you produce the odd sociopath. I mean, uh, I remember having a bit of an exchange with David Froome, where he was saying, he constantly says things about Trump, pointing out that, that Trump was not the first moron who'd been elected in the USA this century. And he had a big part in creating the opening. But I think in this country... The public school system creates people that I would call what Will, Will Ferrell characters. They're like Ron Burgundy. What he says is they are characters who have, have confidence that's unjustified. <laughs> and, but
2: Walter uh, you, says that about his characters.
0: Yes, he does. Un, unjustified, co- unearned confidence. And I would say David Cameron, Boris Johnson, um, Nigel Farage, all these guys, unearned confidence. We think because they talk with confidence, they know something. And they bloody don't. They don't. And, and as you know, I was public school educated. I was brought up to be a sociopath. Fortunately, I never practiced professionally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I guess it depends on your definition of unearned, because I'm sure they don't see it that way. I'm sure that they've been told since since they were at those public schools that like this kind of power is their destiny.
0: Well, exactly. If you the English public school consists of taking taking young men away from their parents at an impressionable age and convincing them that, that they they are the master the master race, and that as long as they they speak speak with a particular accent, they can get away with anything. Interestingly, that's not unlike Donald Trump's educational profile.
2: Yeah, have you been following all the stuff about his um, family wealth? No. Oh, like because you know he has this thing, and he says that he um. Uh, he only got a million dollars from his father, and then he and that's how we built his empire. And that, that. only a million. And he, yeah, and he had to pay every penny back. And the New York <laughs> Times have been doing sort of deep, deep dive into his family's financial records for the last year, and it, they've just unveiled just a, a just outrageous tax avoidance. You know, Donald Trump was essentially a millionaire by the time, uh, uh, yeah, a millionaire by the time he was three because his dad. <laughs> had already put so much into his name. And he bailed him out constantly. His father was bailing him out to the tune of, you know, several million every couple of months when he was a young man. Uh, And, they, yeah, like, it was just, like, he has been, he has had such, like, the idea of privilege is just so epitomized in that because he would fail and fail and fail and yet continue to be able to try again and again and again with his various bad business deals because his father would constantly bail him out, which is how you managed to eventually actually make some money.
0: Yeah, so Will Ferrell should play him in the movie. (laughs) But I mean, Um, what we're dealing with, as I said, is the apotheosis of white white male entitlement. That's what's going on right now. And hopefully we've got some kind of a, you know, dialectic going on where it it is clearly so extreme, so outrageous and so unhelpful to the great majority that it is blown out of the water forever.
2: I I feel like the the action of the last week will end question. Sorry, Amanda, you wanted to say something? I'm
1: just wondering, do you feel that um, shifting at all in the current British politics, just because it seems like the kind of people that have well, like lowercase m, momentum are (laughs) like people like Jeremy Corbyn or even like if we're not talking about Labour, even people like Nigel Farage like people that have sort of a popular appeal at the moment don't necessarily seem to be from that kind of background?
0: Well, Jeremy Corbyn isn't. Nigel Farage is. He was at Dulwich College, privileged as you like, came out of the city, um, earned a lot of money, you know, in a, in a... Uh, a zero-sum business, that is, they make money at, at, at your expense. And the city is all about that kind of stuff. Having spent a long time in financial services, I think it's impossible to do what, do what he does and what the big banks do and maintain any level of integrity. And there's an explosion coming. But, yeah, but Jeremy Corbyn... Jeremy Corbyn... um like
1: Osborne or uh, David Cameron or like these sort of more classical Tory politicians. What um, about them? He he just doesn't sort of present himself or brand himself in the same way that the sort of... Um, I guess, more class- your more classical idea of a Tory politician. You're
0: right, you're right. And, and exactly, that's what's so clever about him. Because mm. he appears to be a man of the people with, with his, you know, his, his cigarette and his pint of bitter. He appears to be a, a man of the people. Whereas, you know, there was an Osborne literally at the right hand of William I at the Battle of Hastings. I mean literally, not metaphorically, at the right hand. George Osborne never had to prove himself popular. I mean, he, he, he got, he got a, a rotten borough and became a member of, member of parliament and was kind of, kind of expre- expressed into the cabinet. I mean, he's never had to be popular. Farage has actually, you know, worked out a way of being different while being exactly the same. He's a very clever man and absolutely morally bankrupt. Do
2: you know what a rotten borough is, Amanda? No. Well, that's interesting. Now tell Amanda what a rotten borough is. A
0: rotten borough? Is like Southwest Surrey, which is well, where, it is, is where, it's, where the, basically the new MP is given the, given the right to be elected by the previous one. South Southwest Surrey Jeremy Hunt, who is a you know only only material for a Limerick, in my opinion, who who um, is currently Foreign Secretary before that Minister of Health, Secretary of State for Health.
2: I was just gonna say, rotten boroughs are in the sort of eighteenth century, where there would literally be like a, a horse, a, like a horse and one farmer living in uh, an area, and they a bit, like, I guess, a, a bit like gerryma- gerrymandering in the US, and they would call that a borough. So you know, you'd have basically three. Um, voters and two of them would be the family of the landowner the landowner would we'll, run for the seat and they, they would get right. the seat That's what it is, William,
0: it? W- yeah. William, Pitt, William Pitt I think William Pitt the elder but probably the younger, I think they had the same constituency, where the constituency called Salisbury Plain and I think I'm right in saying, you check this that there were seven electors so, so essentially, they just decided they want to be in parliament. So, a rotten borough is where, where it is; a, it is not really open to the democratic process. Now, obviously, obviously, I'm being hyperbolic talking about modern boroughs being like that, but it does appear to be somewhat like that because the electorate is like an ocean-going liner; it doesn't change quickly.
2: Well, mm. I think rotten boroughs is an interesting thing because we've we've just had um, this same uh, system of government for such a long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, interesting thing. This is a, sort of a 18th century idea that sort of, in some ways, still has relevance now. Um, yeah. there's never been a prime minister younger than William William Pitt
0: the Younger. What about him?
2: <laughs> he was the youngest prime minister ever. We've not had one. He, he was about 22 or something, wasn't he?
0: I think I think he was. And um, it, one of them took over just after we'd lost America, didn't they? Because it, it it was um, Lord North who was prime minister when we lost America, wasn't he, if I remember. And the Younger was, younger was in, in reaction to that. Is so, that right? I can't remember the details. When it. we let them go. the Elder. Well. Let
2: them go off and do their own thing.
0: Yeah, have, good riddance. That's what that's what I
2: I say. You know, drink some beers, have some parties, <laughs> make their own mistakes. Go and make their own mistakes.
0: <laughs> exactly. Do
1: we have any last questions? Guys. What's it like being Jess's dad?
0: <laughs> What's it like being Jess's dad? I, I, I have six remarkable children <laughs> um, and I am, So proud of her. She is an extraordinary woman.
1: Aww. (laughs) Thanks, Daddy. How do you feel about her identifying you as the uh, most British person that she knows?
0: She should get out more.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think you taught me what I think of as Britishness.
0: Hmm. Well, that's that's great. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows?
2: Anyway, we have to... Thank you so much, Dad. This has been so fascinating. We could well, do it. Yeah.
0: Thank you for letting me
2: shoot my mouth off. No, oh, uh, always. Uh, whenever.
0: <laughs>
2: As usual. All right. I love you, Dad. Bye. Bye.
1: Wow. What a charming man. What a marvelous interview that was with Jess's dad, Richard Ashworth. Um... This is Amanda, uh, coming to you from the editing studio, by which I mean from my own bed. Um, I'm, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm editing this, and I've decided I'm going to split it into two episodes. So I hope you've enjoyed this, uh, British Dad episode of The Special Relationship, and, uh, tune in next week for an interview with... My dad, Rip It's really weird doing this by myself without Jess in the room. Kind of makes me understand why in the Adam Buxton podcast, when he's recording the little intro and outro bits, uh, and he's in the middle of Norwich, in the middle of a field by himself, that he pretends his dog's talking to him, because it feels really weird talking to yourself out loud. Anyway, uh thanks for listening. Goodbye.
0: Appreciate you coming back, Mr. Prime sir.